We're going to be in uh, two different places this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to start off in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 2. I, I know we've already been here. We're a little bit past chapter 2 now. Um, we're going to look back one more time and then look way ahead to chapter 8 a little bit later. Um, wisdom is one of, these passive, one of these topics that the preacher comes back to several times throughout Ecclesiastes. And so uh, I'm going to read, we're going to go over two of those passages this morning. So chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says this, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is hevel, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, last weekend, uh, I was sorry I missed it because I heard it was great um, with Pastor Dale uh, speaking uh, on the in chapter five of uh, Ecclesiastes. We were in uh, in Chicago visiting my family. Uh, my a lot of my family lives in. in the Chicago area, and on Sunday in particular, we were spending time with my brother and his family, enjoying time at the park with our boys and their twin boys uh, that are around the same age as our kids. Uh, we don't get to see them but a couple of times a year, really, and so um, it was just a, just a great time together. And I think it was my sister-in-law who said, I wish we lived closer or you guys lived closer so the boys could play together more often and we could spend more time together more often. And it's a sentiment that we all agreed with. We enjoyed the few short hours that we had together. And yet there was this, dare I say, hatred of the fact that it couldn't last longer than that. And often we feel that conflict in life. One writer writes of a tearful goodbye between his son and his mother after spending a few days together. And he writes, The tears that snatch the words rise from two sources— one, the irritation that life as it requires, or life as it is, requires such sad goodbyes. And two, the grateful gift it was to enjoy a couple of ordinary days together. Think of the funerals you've attended of loved ones. You cry for at least two reasons. One, the indignation that you feel, even the hatred of death of losing a loved one. Death is always an enemy, whether it's a five-year-old who's dying or a 95-year-old who's dying. It's always an enemy. And two, the gratitude of the many years and moments that you've spent with this person that you love. So when the preacher says in chapter two that he hated life, 
We shouldn't be too surprised. I think we can all point to times when we hate life. We live in a world that's tainted by sin, that's broken in every way. And because of that, we often feel anger, frustration, or indignation in the face of it. Loved ones have cancer. Young people killed in car accidents. Infants with serious heart conditions. It doesn't take much scrolling through your newsfeed to feel a hatred for aspects of life. Earlier this week, maybe you saw it, there was a huge 900-page report that came out of, out of Pennsylvania and the Catholic Church. The Pennsylvania Grand Jury released this huge report documenting the abuse of over 1,000 victims at the hands of over 300 priests in the Catholic Church over 70 years. And then the Catholic Church sought to cover this up over those 70 years. This on the heels of the findings of the past several months of Larry Nasser and his 300 victims. I mean, this is just wrong. And if there isn't like a sense of outrage or even hatred of these events, then something is wrong with us. The wise can't pretend that all is well in this world. So when the preacher says, I hated life, and later that there's a time to love and a time to hate, he means that it is right and good to cultivate a distaste for the misery, the death, and the evil, and the havoc with which all of these things ravages us in this life. It's a jarring statement, though, isn't it? To say, I hated life. It disorients us. We don't expect a Bible preacher to, to come right out and announce his distaste for life and work. Hatred is a strong word. Anytime that my, that my boys say that they hate something or someone, I caution them, especially when they're saying it to each other, which siblings often do. Hate is, a, hate is a very strong word. We must remember that the preacher says that he hated life, not God. The preacher is able to say this because he knows that God can handle it. He doesn't have to smile and pretend that all is well in life. And so, I hated life, he says. Not only can God handle it, but a true relationship with God requires such language. Other books like Job and the Psalms and Lamentations, they give us language in our faith that includes a full range of emotions, including frustration and lament and even hate. We've all observed or experienced cases when, when hatred is not okay. White supremacists marching in Charlottesville, Virginia. Road rage that causes accidents on the highway. People spouting words of hate simply because they disagree with another person. When we think of hatred, this is where our minds often go. But the preacher seems to be indicating that there are times when it's okay and even appropriate to hate. The preacher mentions Uh, or mentors us into a life that places God at the center of everything, even our hatreds. He mentors us in how to wisely hate. Hatred looks differently in a person of wisdom because the hatred of the wise differs in kind from the hatred of a fool. Fools assume that what they feel and think is synonymous with what God feels and thinks. Author Anne Lamott once wrote that, you know that you've made an idol out of God 
when, he, when you realize that God hates all of the same people that you do? Think about that for a minute. Let that sit with you. That's the hatred of a fool. And in contrast to the preacher, the fool teaches us to hate individual people, to hate God, to hate wisdom, to hate love and wise correction and beauty and knowledge. Folly says to embrace bitter jealousy, to embrace selfish ambition and partiality. The preacher counters such folly with a call to wisdom. Now we could turn to several passages in Ecclesiastes to discuss wisdom. As I, like I said earlier, it's one of these main themes that comes up again and again uh, throughout the book. Uh, but we're going to focus on Ecclesiastes chapter 8 for the rest of our time together. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. At times throughout this book, you might get the sense that the preacher denigrates or disparages wisdom. But that's not the case at all. I think his overall message on wisdom is twofold. One, that wisdom helps us survive in a sometimes wicked and unjust world. And then two, wisdom has its limitations. So wisdom is better than folly, yes. He just said that in the passage we read. But wisdom is not your savior. And just like any good thing in life, if we make wisdom an ultimate thing, then it's always going to disappoint you. And this passage that we're going to read here in chapter 8, the preacher alternates between describing uh, how to use wisdom in a dangerous and sometimes unjust world and then uh, looking at the limitations of wisdom. So follow along with me. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And he, start, he says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is, a, is supreme, who can say to him, What are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and way. For there is a proper time and way for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. He begins his chapter by praising wisdom. Who is like the wise person, he says? The expected answer is no one. And he follows with another question. Who knows the explanation or the interpretation of things? And he's thinking of a wise man in a royal court, perhaps like Joseph in the book of of Genesis, who interpreted dreams for the pharaoh of Egypt. And again, the expected answer is no one but the wise person. And he continues to praise wisdom, saying that it makes a person's face shine. He says wisdom uh, is even reflected in a person's face, in in their countenance, in the way that they look. In the next few verses, the preacher urges us to use wisdom in this dangerous world. He gives the example of a person before a powerful but fickle king. And the preacher advises people that a wise person will keep the king's command because of his oath and allegiance before God. He advises people to watch their conduct before a king, to act pleasantly 
before that king. In verse 5, he wraps up his advice with a proverb. Whoever obeys the command of even a powerful and fickle king will meet no harm. Uh, The reason for safety, even in such a dangerous situation, says the preacher, is that the wise man will know the time and the way. A fool might argue with that king, but the wise person will know when it's time to speak up and when it's time to stay silent. Well, then the preacher moves on to describe some of the limitations of wisdom. In verse 7, since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. He says not even a wise person knows what the future holds. Uh, But not only do we not know the future, sometimes we can't even really know the present or be able to control the present. This really frustrates the preacher. At different times in this series, we've used the word hevel to describe this world. Hevel is often translated meaningless or vanity throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but a better translation might be enigma or paradox. He says life doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. And here he's saying nobody knows the future, and none of us can really even control the present. And he hates that about life. And he breaks this down into several examples. Firstly, he says no one has the power over, over the wind. And anyone who has experienced a hurricane or tornado can attest to that, that they have no power over the wind. Secondly, he says no one has power over the day of death. He said this before, that God is the one who sets the times, including a time to be born and a time to die. And there's nothing we can do about that. Uh, Thirdly, those who are sent into battle have no say over when they're going to be discharged. You know, once the battle starts, there's no discharge from the army. A soldier can't just walk away whenever he pleases. It's just not the way it works. Uh, And finally, he says wickedness will not release those who practice it. Wickedness will not deliver the wicked. Uh, We have no power over the wicked and what they might do. And yet at the same time, the wicked may seem to flourish, but it will eventually catch up to them. As he says later, maybe not in this life, it may be in the next life, but eventually their wickedness will catch up to them. In each of these examples, the preacher demonstrates that we have no power over present circumstances. Wisdom doesn't help us gain control over our lives. It has its limitations. The preacher moves again in verse 9, back to describing Uh, this sometimes dangerous and unjust world that we live in. And he describes some of the things that he hates about life. So verse 9, All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is Hevel. And when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, 
I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There's something else hevel that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is hevel. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. He goes back briefly to describing that king that he talked about earlier. You know, some people in power, he says, use that power and authority to harm others. You know, think of any dictator in history or some leaders today, leaders in any church or government position or organization, they have the ability to use their power or, and their authority either for great good or for great harm. And he goes on to admit that often under the sun, folly receives no tangible consequences. He says, here, that he knows of some who grew up in the temple, who, who went to the holy place their whole lives, but who cared nothing for wisdom. And yet these people are sometimes honored with public praise and reputation. Yet in truth, they were wicked toward God and toward others. And in other cases, justice is delayed while crimes continued. And delayed judgment, he says, encourages evil to flourish. And this really bothers him. He hates this. Now this happened in the scandal with the Catholic Church I mentioned and with Larry Nassar. Their crimes went unchecked for decades without justice. And then in verse 12 and 13, he briefly falls back on traditional wisdom. He says that God will judge us and God loves wisdom. Foolish people may boast and brag. They may win and triumph for now. But the victories of the foolish are not eternal. Both the foolish and the wise will stand before God and give an account for their lives. And folly will not have the last word. Then his observations lead him to an enigma. The righteous sometimes get what the wicked deserve. And the wicked sometimes get what the righteous deserve. Being wise and righteous gives us no immunity under the sun. Sometimes good and wise people are treated poorly while fools receive praise and honor. When uh, when tornadoes rip through a town, they don't destroy only wicked people's houses. Being wise and righteous has its advantages, but it also has its limitations. The preacher here is describing the world that we live in and asking how can we live wisely in a world like this. And he closes this section with a few more thoughts on the limitations of wisdom. Verse 16, he says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. The preacher reflects on his own task, this thought experiment that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. His thought experiment results in him losing sleep, he says here. What he sees is so disturbing that it prevents him from finding rest. 
Uh, in these verses, the preacher comes against the greatest limitation of wisdom, that even the wise person cannot fully understand the ways of God. As Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Or as Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. The preacher shows us that although we should use wisdom to survive in a dangerous and unjust world, wisdom does not enable us to know all the work of God. We have to learn to live with our limitations. We simply cannot comprehend all the work of God and all the mysteries of God. Although we must use our God-given wisdom in life, we must also accept the fact that life on earth presents us with mysteries we cannot fathom. So how do we live wisely in a world that we sometimes hate? An illustration from a pastor and scholar, Zach Eswine, helps us bring all of this together, I think. Imagine that you're coaching a a basketball team of of seven and eight-year-old boys. God help you. I mean, like the the final score is going to be two-nothing only because the ball bounced off a kid's head into the basket. Like, imagine you're coaching this team, and the other team is tripping your players. They're cheating. Uh, They're pushing your players and trash-talking. And meanwhile, you recognize also that the referees are, are in cahoots with the opposing team's coaches. They're friends with the opposing team's coaches. And so you know it's very obvious things aren't going to go well for you. So you're playing a game against this team in this environment. So what do you tell your players? You have, I think, at least three options. The first option is you can quit. Uh, you can tell your players, I hate this game. There's no point in trying. No matter what we do, we're not going to win. And some of you are getting hurt in the process. Let's forfeit. That's option one. Option two is that you can return folly with folly. I hate this game. You know what, guys? Since this is all unfair and no one seems to care, you do the same thing to them. You see them cheating, you find a way to cheat too. They push you, you push them back. They trip you, you shove them into the stands. Who cares? If everyone's going to break the rules anyhow, let's, so be it. Let's do it. That's option two. The preacher would look at these two options and he would understand what it means to hate how the game is being played. But option one leaves folly to win on the court with no one to counter it. Option two leaves only folly on the court. And either way, folly remains the only game in town. The the preacher agrees on the one hand, I hate this life. But his response uh, to this kind of hatred, that, that this kind of hatred promotes, is substantially different from these other two options. I think he would say, I will oppose the life I hate with wisdom. Not because I will win in this world, I likely will not win, but at least wisdom will remain on the court. At least folly will not be the only game in town. 
at least those who watch the game will have an alternative set before them. And those who play and get hurt will have a way of healing still available to them. So what does this mean then in my workplace? I've had people throughout my career share with me their experiences of the sort of cutthroat nature of corporate America, or, or maybe it's a different job environment, but the sort of cutthroat nature. And I suppose you would have the same options as this basketball co- coach. You could quit and find something else to do. Or you could join the crowd and do the same thing as everybody else. You know, stepping over others, trampling over others so you can get ahead and Move your way up the ladder. Or maybe you can find a way to hate your job wisely. You can faithfully go to work each day. You can work hard, stay humble, and approach your job from a place of servanthood rather than cutthroat competition. Or what might hating wisely look like with our use of technology? Cell phones have brought a lot of benefits to society, but they've also dramatically changed the way that we work and play and interact with one another. Our bosses and friends and family members expect us to be on call and available at a moment's notice. And if a person doesn't answer a text or an email in two minutes or less, we're tempted to call in the National Guard to see what's wrong with that person. What happened? I just texted you. Why didn't you respond? Cell phones... And technology grant us more flexibility in our careers, but they also set an expectation of greater accessibility, interfering with any semblance of time off. Now, I suppose we have the same options as the basketball coach. We could throw our cell phones away and take a time machine back to 1990. Or we could use technology like everybody else with no boundaries, anything goes. And let it continue to wreak havoc on our lives. Or maybe we can hate technology wisely. We can set boundaries with our bosses. We can set times aside when we break from our cell phones and other technology. Maybe for several hours in the evening. Or one full day of technology a week. As sort of a technology Sabbath. Whatever it might look like for you. Can you and your family find find a way to hate technology wisely? Take any situation in life and run it through the grid of these three options and ask yourself, what would hating wisely look like in this situation? By choosing the third option, the preacher changes the purpose for playing the game. He calls us to question the motives by which we seek God in this sometimes dangerous and unjust world. We don't play to win or to advance or to gain for ourselves. We play because, because of God and because of his call on our lives to be different, to be separate and distinct from the world around us. We seek to overcome the evil that we rightly hate, not by abandoning the world to that evil or by multiplying evils, but by letting evil go and seeking to respond instead with what is good and right, and just. In fact, do you want to discover what you love? What you're really passionate about? Put your finger on what you really hate. Because then you can hate it wisely by responding to what you hate with positive action. Is it abortion that gets you riled up? Then fight for the cause of the unborn. 
Is it racial injustice in America that you really hate? Then find a way to work towards racial equality. Do you hate it when you've come into places and they're completely and totally unorganized? Then put your organizational skills to good use. Find a cause that you can contribute to. Sometimes when we look at what we cry about and what we hate, we discover what we love. In order to hate life properly and to respond wisely, we need what the preacher had, wisdom and God. We look to the God of the preacher, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We too need wisdom, and that wisdom is Jesus. He is our wisdom. Think of what Jesus seemed to hate. He hated what religious insiders were making of God. He overthrew tables in the temple because he was outraged that someone would try to make a profit out of God's house. He lamented over Jerusalem as they kept killing the prophets that God sent to them to rescue them. And by the way, they were about to kill him too. And God hated sin so much because of its effect on this world, of its effect on us and our separation between us and God. And he sent it so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross to destroy it all once and for all for us. So to say that we hate life is to say that we will no longer love what the enemies of it do. We declare that we will no longer join in the folly. And instead, we will take up the cause of this world that we sometimes hate with prayer, with lament, with honest speech, with faithful presence and positive action. And as we take a stand for what is right and good and just, we honor God, and we honor who he has called us to be as his people. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? God, we're grateful for who you are and for who you have called us to be as your people. Because God, you, although this world was destroyed by sin, you didn't leave us um, to die to our sin. But you rescued us through Jesus Christ to reclaim this whole world that has been broken by sin. And God, we know that you have already started to bring about that redemption through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But you've also sent your church to go about and stand for who you are, to stand for what is right and good and just in this world. And this sometimes uh, wicked and unjust and difficult place to live. You've called us, Lord, you've, and, and you've equipped us by your Spirit to take a stand for what is right, to hate wisely as we go about our lives, never to hate individual people, never to hate wisdom or you or things that are good and beautiful in this world, but to hate when things are broken, when oppressors are taking advantage of the oppressed, 
and when the poor and the weak are marginalized. God, there are so many things in this world that we should be outraged by. But God, you also call us to stand to show that there is an alternate way to live in this world. Lord, help us. Help us to do so as your humble servants, seeking to be faithful to you with all that we do. We thank you, God, for who you are and for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. The last couple of years, I often try to look over my sermon notes some, at some point during the week um, to remember.